Would you turn there? If you have your Bibles or if you've got an app on your phone or device or however you follow along in God's Word, uh, please join us in Numbers 32. Numbers 32. Uh, I struggled with this passage. Some passages are hard because they're hard to understand, like what's going on there, and you've got to investigate the original languages and whatever you've got to do. That's not why this one was tough. Some passages are tough because we're not sure what to do with it. You know, what is the application? What is the point? What, what, is, what does this have to do with me? I get what's happening here. I get the story. What does this have to do with my life? And I think the reason why, for me personally at least, it was difficult uh, to figure out, you know, what, what is really the take-home value here of this passage is because I tend to be a black-and-white thinker sometimes, uh, as my wife often points out. Uh, there's right and there's wrong. This is wrong. This is right. God made it clear. Why are you messing around? Do what's right. Don't do what's wrong. That doesn't mean I live perfectly, but it just, it helps me at least to have categories. What are the rules here? You know, if you get invited to play a game and you're like, what are the rules? You're like, there are no rules. Well, how do you score a point? Eh, there are no points. Well, who wins? Eh, nobody wins. If you feel automatically, like, deflated and you don't feel like playing the game, I think that's a natural feeling. What's the point of a game if there's kind of no goal? What are the rules? Is there an out of bounds? There's no rules. So rules are helpful. The problem is that the Bible doesn't cover everything in specifics. And so you've got things that the Bible has really clear. This is wrong. This is right. Do these things. No arguments. Don't do these things. No arguments. Then you have this, thing, these, this area down here where, you know, we're going to have differences you know, we're not all going to dress exactly the light alike. We're not always going to make the same exact choices with regard to different things in life that don't, they're not up here in this clear do and don't. But then there's this middle tier where it's not clearly right or clearly wrong in a black and white sense, but that doesn't mean there's not smart and stupid or expedient and foolish or wise and foolish. And I think passages like today's passage help us think not just in the black and white. God said this is right and this is wrong. Outside of that, I could do whatever I want. Well, outside of that, I guess you could do whatever you want, but that doesn't mean anything you would want to do is the smartest thing to do, the wisest thing to do. We need to kind of learn a discipline of expedience. Expedience, right? It, it means doing what is suitable, not right or wrong necessarily, but what is best for the given situation in front of you, what's the wisest thing to do? Even if you can get away with something, does that mean that getting away with it is actually best for you or your family or your church? See, we can use the black and white categories to escape a lot of this stuff down here where it's like, hey, point the verse that says I can't do that. Well, I don't have a verse. Well, then shut up and leave me alone. That person tends to live kind of a rocky life, not one of pursuit of holiness. It's give me the bare minimal of what holiness looks like, and outside of that, shut up and leave me alone. Is that really pursuing holiness, or are we just trying to get away with as much as we can outside of what's clearly black and white stated in the Bible? Does that make sense? It's a dangerous place to be because we can live lives that uh, are too complacent, apathetic, maybe even pathetic. <laughs> Why? 
because we're not chasing after God's heart. We're living lives that are just trying to escape his wrath only. And that counts. Let's look at it. Numbers chapter 32. Numbers chapter 32. Here we have an interesting episode where the people of Israel have sort of cleared the path. They're right up against uh, the Jordan. So imagine the seats where you all are is the wilderness, okay, to the east. And this area right here is the Jordan River. And this platform here is the promised land. They're coming up. They're right up against the river here, about to cross in. Two of the 12 tribes decide you know what? We don't want to go across the river. We like it right here. This is good. And so they propose to Moses that these two tribes just hang out right here while the other ten go in. doesn't seem like a big problem at first. They're not asking to commit adultery. They're not asking to mix with other nations. Let's check it out, picking up in verse 1. 1 through 5, you see the, the kind of change of plans that they have in their mind. Now, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad, those are the two tribes, had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So they saw this land out here, and they're like, man, we've got a lot of livestock, and this is great, right here, right here, up against the river. It's great area for livestock. So, verse 2, the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Adroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliela, Sebam, Nebu, and Baon, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Sound bad? Well, it's not sin. Are they breaking the Ten Commandments? Are they breaking any of the commandments? They're asking permission to chill out right here. Everybody else go in. Moses doesn't take it that way. Look at verse 6. Moses' response reveals there's a problem. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? while you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land and that the land has given them. Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. Now he's reminding them of Numbers 11, that rebellion. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day, and he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all the people. Your fathers did this. They didn't want to go in because they didn't want to face the large, giant-like people of the land. They were scared, and they didn't want to cross the river. 
and they were punished and they wandered for 40 years. Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn and you're coming up against the river and you're coming up with another excuse to not go in. And what's going to happen is you're going to discourage everybody else. They're not going to want to go in. Wait a minute, we're down two tribes and then they're going to be fearful and they're not going to want to cross. And then when that happens, the Lord is going to have to reveal his anger again. What are you doing? So Moses doesn't, Moses doesn't see it as benign. He sees it as highly problematic and dangerous. So they come up with a compromise, verse 16. Then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place, and our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. Notice they're saying, we're going to go outside of the marching order. Back in those early chapters of Numbers, the ones where you kind of doze off when you're trying to do your devotionals through the book of Numbers, and this tribe will march first, and this tribe will march second. They were supposed to be further back in the line, and they're saying, well, we'll change the marching order, and we'll march in the front. Huh? What do you think? Huh? We'll march the front of the line. We'll edit God's marching orders. That's their proposal. But we're going to leave our children behind. We're going to leave our wives and our livestock behind. And Give us a minute. Give us some time to build fortified cities, pens, you know, so that they can be protected here while we go in. But verse 18, we will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. Oh, has it now? Glad you thought of a better inheritance than the Lord did. Verse 20, so Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Build cities for your little ones, and folds for your sheep, and do what you have promised. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben said to Moses, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead, but your servants will pass over every man who is armed for war before the Lord to battle as my Lord orders. So they're making this deal. Okay, okay, we're going to do this land. Don't make us take everybody over the river. We're going to leave our sheep. We're going to leave our little ones. We're going to leave our wives. We're going to fortify them in cities and in pens. And we'll go out in front of you and complete the deal. And Moses is like, well, you better complete the deal or God will be against you. Okay, we will. We will complete the deal. They're starting to sound a little bit less like good guys maybe and more like, I don't know, that green army of ghosts that Aragorn recorded, recruited to help him out. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, were those good guys? No, but they helped. Why? They had a deal. That's not necessarily someone that's in your corner doing something for you because they had a deal. But it's not sin. It's not wrong. They're not breaking a law. They're compromising. And out of the compromise, they are going to march in front. They are going to take up their arms and they're going to go fight. And maybe some of them, many of them, I don't know, might die. Some of them won't even return to their wives. You've got to give them credit. They're going across and they do it. So Moses, verse 29, he concedes. 
And so Moses gave command concerning them to Eliezer the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers of the houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And Moses said to them, If the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, every man who is armed to battle before the Lord will pass with you over the Jordan, and the land shall be subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. However, if they will not pass over you with, with you armed, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben answered, What the Lord has said to your servants, we will do. We will pass over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us beyond the Jordan. And Moses gave to them, to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben. It's kind of skipping ahead, but if you read the book of Joshua, I believe Joshua chapter 21 or 22, they do it. Reuben and Gad, they march and they conquer and they do what they're supposed to do. So Moses gives them the land, holds up their end of the deal. The half-tribe of Manasseh is in there in verse 33. And you see the names of real people, real places, real divvying up. In verse 40, and Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he settled in it. And Jair, the son of Manasseh, went and captured their villages and called them Havoth, Jair, and Noba went and captured Canaan and his villages and called it Noba after his own name. In other words, they did the capturing, they did the pushing out of the people that they're supposed to do, and they got the land that they had agreed to get. So, all's well that ends well, right? If the story ended, and you know what? They ended up you know, mixing with the, the rest of the Midianites from the, the other Midianites. Uh, they ended up mixing with leftover people from lingering tribes. They cheated on God or they started breaking the laws. They started setting up idols. No. They did what they said they were going to do. They marched with the rest of Israel. They did what the deal was. They held up, held up their end of the bargain and they got the land that they wanted to get. So what's the point of it? Well, the point of it is just because they didn't uh, break laws outright doesn't mean there's not a lesson to learn. Think about things from their perspective for a minute. It makes sense, right? The land that's in front of Jordan, this side, it is good for livestock. And notice, Moses doesn't argue that. Moses isn't like, man, you guys are so dumb. Now suddenly you're topographical experts. You were 400 years you know, churning mud with your feet, and now suddenly you're, you're, you're livestock experts? Shut up and come follow us over here. You don't know what land is better for what. No, he doesn't argue that. I mean, you can, granted, yeah, this land is, seems like it's good for livestock. There's rivers and there's plains, and yeah, you can, you can raise good livestock here. That is not the argument. But you can see that that's what their perspective is. This makes more sense to us than the original plan. This makes more sense. Don't make us go over there. Verse 5, do not take us across the Jordan. We don't want to go over there. This is it. The grass is greener here, literally, <laughs> or flatter, or whatever it takes for it to be good for livestock. So it makes sense, and that's where we start. We don't start with, God, I want to cheat on you. I want to not follow you. No, we start with, God, I know that this hurts you. I don't want to do that. I just want to do this over here. Doesn't that make sense? That's where it begins. And we convince ourselves, well, this is not sin. And if it's not sin, what's the big deal? I can compromise with God. But you'll notice that that's not the flavor of this text. 
You can also see maybe implied it's not what they say, but they've already trekked through the wilderness. They've already survived the wilderness. They've made it to the end. They just want to be on this side, not that side. They might even be thinking, it's not like we haven't fought. We fought and defeated the peoples of this land right here that we want to settle in. So we did our part. Let them fight the guys that they needed, you know, that are inhabiting the land that they want. But we've already fought the people in the land that we want. So it's not like, hey, we're being lazy or, you know, I just don't like wielding swords. We're not fighters. They are fighters. And they already did it. But see, what they're saying is, we've secured ourselves. We don't need to go and secure everybody else right now. But it makes pragmatic sense. They're looking around them. They see good land. What's the big deal? It's not sin. And these are the kind of conversations we have as pastors. What's the big deal? When do I press on somebody's life? When do you do it as a parent? Do you only go after your kid when they break an egregious law of God clear in Scripture? Or are you allowed to say anything about a messy room? What's the verse about a messy room? Okay, so I can't say anything about a messy room. Eat candy all day. Where's the verse about constantly eating candy? Find me the verse about cavities. Nope. Oh, I can't say anything then? What should you expect of pastors and elders? Only to point things out when you've already cheated on your spouse? Or can we talk about how you treat entertainment? What you're allowing your eyes to see? Well, show me the verse. I can't watch rated R. It's not the verse, man. Do you want to end up over there? You, 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 do you want to keep people from saying anything to you? Not just pastors, but friends, right? Co-laborers in the gospel. And we're not allowed to speak into each other's lives unless there's a cold verse. Boom! There's the verse. See, there wasn't a law that was written down that they were breaking, but Moses is upset. Does he have the right to be upset? Yes. Why? Because even though it's not a straight sin what they're asking, it doesn't give off the aroma of wisdom. You give it the sniff test, and something stinks. Like you walk into a room, and you're like, something stinks. And you got to sniff around to try to find it. It's not clear, it's not obvious, but something there, something is off. And that odor is foolishness. It's a lack of wisdom, even though it's not a clear break of the law. You see? That's how the wisdom literature of the Bible operates. All those proverbs that talk about laziness, the wickedness of laziness. Well, what's lazy? Getting up at 9 a.m., is that lazy? If I sleep till 10 a.m., is that lazy? See, you can't nail down a time, so therefore I can sleep however long I want. Really? Wisdom is principles, and we might apply it in different ways, and it takes energy and thought and discernment to figure out how to apply wisdom because it's not in the black and white lane. It's so situational and circumstantial and applicational that we've got to think it through. But when something's not black and white, that doesn't mean don't think it through. They're not breaking anything black and white, but we still have a whole chapter about how problematic it is for them to adjust God's plans, even though they're not asking to do something outrightly sinful. So when Moses gives it the quick sniff test, when we look at Moses' response to them and their interaction together, there are some signs uh, that point to the odor of foolishness. The first one is in verse 1 and 2. The whole thing came about not by faith, not because they're clinging to some promise. They saw the land, 
They saw the lands in verse 1. They had great livestock, the beginning of verse 1. And then, and so verse 2, they say to Moses, hey, change of plans. They, they had this, they saw this, they said that. And that pattern in Scripture, uh, thankfully a friend of mine, uh, Pastor Paul Alexander, pointed this out when I was talking about this text with him. That pattern never goes well in Scripture. Beginning in the garden. You see the fruit, it looks good to eat, you eat it. Right? You, you have something, you see it, and then you start going off the rails with your own plans. Not a great rhythm to begin with. Very pragmatic. Very pragmatic. So many churches go off the rails by elevating pragmatism over wisdom. Pragmatism. What makes sense? What makes logistical sense? Wouldn't this make more sense? Then the pastors, the elders, the leaders that go, yeah, but I think biblically this is the flavor. Well, flavor, that's your opinion. You don't have a clear verse. We could do whatever we want. Doesn't go well with those churches. So it begins with these pragmatics instead of faith. And it's, Moses speaks to their lack of wholeheartedness. See, he's not saying you're outright sinning. What you're doing is you're not doing it all the way, doing what you're supposed to do all the way with the gusto that you're supposed to have. You're just kind of eh, dialing it in, the bare minimal. We see this in verses 11 and 12. When Moses starts comparing them to their fathers who didn't go all the way and discouraged everybody else, and he says, because they have not wholly followed me, that was the problem back then. None except Caleb and Joshua survived because Caleb and Joshua, what did they do? They wholly followed the Lord, see? So Moses is pointing out, this is a, this is a matter of going all the way versus going kind of halfway compromising with Moses, compromising about the land and the, and the geography so that you don't have to go all the way as originally planned. Hey, I don't want to go back to Egypt. I'm not even saying I want to hang out in the wilderness. Just make this the promised land right here. See, I want to stay in the covenant. I still want to obey, but can it be on these terms? See, I'm not sinning. I'm not sinning. Just, just want to be here, not there. And that angers Moses because that kind of Lack of wholeheartedness tends to breed a half-heartedness and a discouragement in other people. It literally, if you're reading it in the Hebrew, it restrains the heart of everyone else. We see it as discouragement in verse 7. And we see it as discouragement in verse 9. And then in verse 15, the effect of that discouragement is they won't want to go all the way either. And then when that happens, are they really in the covenant? We're not doing this anymore. Suddenly we went from compromising, adjusting the deal, editing the deal, to so heavily edited that it shares nothing with the original document, and we're not even doing this anymore. And at that point, God is going to unleash wrath on the people just like he did back in Numbers 11. Starts with compromise, ends somewhere bad. He sees this path, and he's seen the path before and where it ends up. So he warns them about that lack of wholeheartedness restrains the hearts of other people. It kills their heart. And then we need to recognize that the parallel with what happened in Numbers 11, they they were scared of the giants. They didn't want to go in. Back then, their fathers saw the people, the scary people, and they became afraid. Here, they're seeing the land 
It's nice. And they became complacent. But they end up kind of in a similar place. The one generation didn't want to do what God was calling them to do because they were afraid of it. This generation isn't afraid. They're just satisfied with not going all the way. Hey, going all the way, that's cool for other people. But halfway, that's cool for me. I'm not sinning. I'm just not going all the way. But he compares them with the wicked generation that didn't do what God called them to do because they were scared. It's just another side of the same coin. Not doing what God is calling us to do because we're complacent. We're easily contented with less than what the Lord has for us because in our minds, this feels better. The grass is greener here. And we can't imagine that the grass would be greener on the other side. Think of the presumptiveness of the, these two tribes that God must have, huh, I didn't think of that. Y'all have livestock, and this land is better. I'm sorry. <laughs> Why would I draw the line at the river? That's so easy. That's so simple, simplistic. It can be beyond the river, sure. Hey, God, we have a better idea. Does that, does that sound wise? No, it doesn't sound wise. So the problem with the kind of black and white thinking is settling not, not for God's best, right? Settling for less than God's best. And that kind of settling for less than God's best hurts you and hurts other people. You'll notice Moses' primary complaint wasn't just that they're not going to be in the land, but what, is, how, what effect is that going to have on the rest of the congregation? Half-heartedness uh, restrains the heart of others. Half-heartedness breeds and weakens the resolve of other people around you. And you see this fear here too. Besides the fact that they probably feared that the land on the other side of the river might not be as good as this land. There's no way that land over here can be any as good or better than this land right here. They can't envision it, so they're not having it. Besides that fear, they feared for their women and children. For example, if you look at verse 17, in that argument with Moses, they're saying, okay, okay, we'll go in, but we're going to leave our livestock, our wives, and our little ones, but let us fortify them in cities so they don't get hurt. Oh, what about the other tribes are sitting there like, but we've got to march with our kids? I mean, one dude with a sword and then his wife with the baby on the back, you know, behind them. We've got to do that. Our kids aren't in fortified cities. So they compromise, but not in solidarity with everybody else. We'll march, and we'll do this, and as soon as we're done, we're out of here, to come back to our safely kept, fortified wives and children, while everybody else's wives and children don't have fortifications. They're there to march. Is that wrong? Are just kind of foolish. And does it matter that it's foolish? It mattered to Moses. It matters to the Lord. And so you see that, that very much like actually their fathers who were too fearful to cross the land, there's a mixture of fear here. Yes, it began with, hey, this is really good land for our livestock. But once they start talking, and the more they talk, you can kind of get what's really going on, and they're afraid to bring their families across the Jordan. That's, what, that's part of what's really happening here. 
But it's hard to argue, right? Because if you argue about livestock, they might win the argument. No, 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 no. Listen, we've been across the Jordan. We remember the reports of the land. It's hilly. It's rocky. It's craggy. This, is, this has what we need. So Moses doesn't argue them on the agricultural <laughs> aspects of the land. But as they're talking, you can see other hints that smell bad. It's not just about sheep. It's about protecting their own interests. Well, what about everybody else? Well, as long as we've secured ours, we'll help you secure yours, but we need to make sure we got what's best for us. And that fear exposed a bigger problem. That's why Moses called them a brood of sinners in verse 14. Interestingly, when Moses says, so you're going to stay here and not help your brothers, you're not going to fight. That would have been the perfect opportunity for them to go, no, 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 you've got us completely wrong. We're going to fight. We're just going to fortify our families first, and then we're going to fight. But that's not what they said. Here's how it went. Hey, Moses, we're not crossing the Jordan. We're good here. We're good. Moses says, what about everybody else? You're going to leave them to fight by themselves? Uh, Okay, how about this? See, that's different. They didn't initially intend to go into the promised land to fight. Moses had to kind of wrangle it out of them and come to a compromise and to concede to their request. So they didn't have the best intention. And then you'll notice that their response is, you know what, you're right, we'll go in with you guys and trust that whatever land we get, it's going to be good. They go, okay, 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 we'll do that, but, but, women and children and sheep, they have to stay here. They have to stay here. But we'll do that, but they need to stay here. Moses is like, all right. But God is watching. Don't go back on your word. See, if they were wholehearted, you wouldn't have had this back and forth. But the back and forth is there because they have to be convinced to do what's best for the rest of the congregation. It's not coming from themselves. So Moses concedes. God allows it. And this passage helps us see that some things that God allows, he doesn't like. Think about that. You might not have a verse on it. Not having a verse on it doesn't mean God is like, good decision. This isn't the only place in Scripture we can go to see that bear out, but this is definitely one of those places where we see it. Not best. Moses allows it. He concedes. But if Moses got what he wanted, do you think it would look like this? No. What's happening here is they're saying, Moses, we'll do it, but don't make us bring our families over. If Moses goes, no, everyone's got to come, he loses two tribes. Why? Because it's an ultimatum. That's why. Don't make an ultimatum with the Lord. We shouldn't have areas in our hearts and the deep recesses of our hearts and our minds where if God touches that, that's it. Those gray areas. If you you push hard on me, God, I'm, I'm out. I'll do the bare minimum. Leave me alone. That's foolish. And it's not good. Not just for you, but for the people around you. It discourages the hearts of people around you. When we get stuck in patterns of complacency, that complacency tends to hurt not only ourselves, but the energy and the resolve of other people in the congregation, the assembly, in the covenant people of God. 
There's so many different places where we can apply this, and I don't want to take too long with it, but I do want us to think about how this touches on real life. Overall, if I can leave you just with one thing, I think about Christians that are like dial-it-in Christians. And there's a lot of us. There's a lot of us. We leave the pushing hard to like missionaries and like people you read about. You read the biography, you're like, wow, so inspiring. But most of us, we just want to kind of keep our head down and get through the day, get through the month, get through the life. Because pushing after God hard costs stuff. You've got to cross rivers and settle in wavy lands instead of this that just makes more sense. Doesn't this just make more sense? And when we live our lives like that, it permeates the rest of the congregation. Some people, they get saved, they get converted, and they're baptized, and they're excited, and they're reading the Word, and they're like, oh my goodness, we're supposed to be taking the world by storm, we're supposed to be preaching to people. And then they start talking to people at our church, and they're like, hey, when's the last time you preached to somebody? When's the last time you did? And you're like, well, back in 1984, I did talk to someone over lunch. What does that do to that person's heart? Now, can I give you a verse? How often should you talk to someone about the Lord? Can I, can I black and white say how often we should evangelize? No, but when we don't evangelize, because it's in that gray area of like, hey, leave me alone, there's not a clear verse on it. I'm not good at it. I tried it once, it failed. Whatever our excuses are for not crossing, not going all the way, those young converts, by the time their clothes are dry from the baptism, are already getting discouraged. See? When we do extra things, like gather for prayer, and the very few show up, what does that communicate? I mean, are we Sunday-only Christians? Sunday between 9 and 12 is what I'll give you, Lord. Hey, let's come back in the evening for one hour of prayer. Nah, game is on. I don't know. I don't go around asking who's not here, why? I'm not going to take a survey. What does that do to the hearts of the people that do show up? It doesn't feel good, I can tell you that. Five, six people, almost 90 on a Sunday, five, six people to pray. Not going all the way. Well, do you have to be here Sunday night to pray? Do I have a verse? Actually, I have a lot of verses, but I mean, I can't, it can't say it has to be separate from the prayer. It has to be Sunday night. It has to be for an hour. No. But we can't always pull out a black and white verse to motivate wisdom. Do we want this church to grow? Do we want to persevere? Do we want to be a church that thrives, not just survives, as this country dwindles and shrinks and shrivels in darkness continually, and we want to survive? We want the next generation to thrive and survive, but we don't pray it in? We don't want to be Sunday-only Christians. Our prayer meeting isn't the only thing. I'm not just using this as an excuse to plug prayer meeting. I've got no vested interest in prayer meeting. Except to say that I think a praying people are used of the Lord. And if we want to be used of the Lord, we need to be a praying people. We gather here at 9.30 in the morning, Sundays. Oftentimes, it's mostly people who had to be here because of worship, had to be here because they're staff. We're the people that want to be here, that want to. They aren't at home going, I don't have to be there till 10. Let's get out of the lane of have to and want to and push. What, is a, what does a wholeheartedness look like 
And brothers and sisters, increasingly, I think the Lord will allow pressure to put on Christians in this country to wake us up. Because we've got brothers and sisters getting beheaded in other places. We've got brothers and sisters meeting in cold, snowy forests because there's nowhere else to meet. And we might feel a little disgruntled if someone's in our chair on Sunday morning. That's not a good place to be. I know all of you aren't like that. And some of us are sometimes like that. And then we have our good days, and then we have days where we need to be encouraged by a passage like this. I've got those days. I've got days where I'm Reuben and Gad. I don't have to do that. Can I just do this? I'm tired. I get it. But that complacency hurts other people's hearts. It restrains their hearts. It kills their resolve to push hard. Because they look around us, they see other people not pushing hard. And we start going backwards. We think about... Oh, there's so many different ways. I'm just kind of looking at the clock. Like, how many of these do I throw out there? When we think about the dating scene, parents raising children and teaching them to date, some of you currently dating, whatever the case might be, you're looking ahead to marriage, and maybe it's been a long time, and you're frustrated, you had a really bad couple relationships, and this person is Christian. And other people come alongside you and go, yeah, but is this person a mature Christian? And you're like, oh, he's Christian, okay? She reads her Bible, okay? All right. Fifteen years later, marriage counseling, and you're like, oh, he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't talk to the kids about the Bible. He doesn't, he only wants, I know, because back when somebody pointed it out in the dating phase, you were like, Shut up! This is nice! I don't have to cross the river. Everybody can't cross the river. We do that with our kids. Is your kid, is your kid saved? Yeah, they're saved. They said a prayer. Oh no, but... Are they barely skating in? Or I mean, do you want them to like pick up their arms and cross the river, so to speak, right? Be wholeheartedly following the Lord. Now, we can go overboard and so nitpick the person we're dating, so nitpick the person we're married to, so nitpick our kids, so nitpick ourselves that nothing we do is ever good enough. Well, we don't want to go there, but my sense is that probably most of us are less tempted to go there and more tempted to go to just a sort of a lackadaisical skating by. And I'm not saying that to portend judgment on anybody. I think you can be a mediocre Christian. I'm not even sure what that means, really. But, I mean, a Christian that is very slow to grow, they're on milk, and they're on milk for a really long time. Like if you see a 17-year-old carrying around a, a milk bottle, how awkward that is. That's how awkward it is for someone to be a Christian for 20 years. And you're like, hey, turn to the book of Matthew. They're like, who's he? What? I mean, it doesn't make sense. So it's not about heaven and hell, but it's about people that, yeah, they're heaven-bound, they're in the covenant, but when is it going to kick in? That it's not good for you, and it's not good for the people around you to be drinking milk when you should be having steak and potatoes. And so a passage like this, Reuben and Gad, they're not out. They're not consigned to being outside of the covenant. They're just not doing what's best. 
are not following the Lord wholly. They're not following the Lord completely. Final couple comments I want to make about this is that the Lord responds to this kind of complacency by shining a spotlight on the black and white things. When the people of Reuben and Gad say, we don't want to go all the way, we just want to do this deal, and through Moses, God says, okay, deal, but those very minimal things you want to hold, your, that's your standard, just the minimal? I'm going to be gazing at that standard. You better do it. It, it kind of raises the heat on those bare minimal things. You see that, and I'm going to give credit to Nathan for pointing this out to me when we were discussing this text. That's how much I was wrestling with this text. I was talking to other people about it even more than other passages. But you look at how many times the text tells us that the things that they're going to do to fill their side of the deal is before the Lord. In other words, God is watching it in verse 20, verse 21, in verse 22, verse 27, verse 29, verse 32. You're going to do your side before the Lord. Before the Lord, you're going to do your half. The things you said you're going to do, you're going to do it before the Lord. And the reason why is because once you start with complacency, it's so easy to now compromise on the black and white things. The things that God does tell us to do, we don't do them anymore. Here's an easy example. The scripture command us to study God's word? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Numerous times. Old Testament, New Testament. Does it tell us how often? How long? Which Bible study plan to read? No, it doesn't. See, that's, that's debatable. How long does it have to be? Does it have to be every day? Does it have to be twice a day? Three times a day? Let's outdo the Muslims and do six times a day. They have to take a time out five times a day. Let's do six. Shouldn't we love Yahweh more than they love Allah? Well, see, that's debatable, but because it's debatable, we can shrink back to one time a week, one time a month, one time a year. What are you going to tell me? What verse are you going to pull out? But at some point, you just end up just not doing it. You're not doing it at all. And so that's why God is, through Moses, telling them, okay, you want to be a bare minimal covenant member? Then we're going to watch those bare minimals. We're going to watch them. Because you're skating so close to the line, that's all we have left. All we could do is watch the line and make sure your skate doesn't go past it. It's a scary thing to live a life that just is comfortable with whatever we, however far we can get away from without being outside the covenant. Here's the hot center of the circle of the covenant. And not being outside the circle, but just right at the edge. Can I just hang out right here? That's a dangerous place. So if you're feeling a little discouraged, if you're feeling super challenged, if you're feeling like, wow, this sermon is really getting me. Okay, start with those clear things and try to ramp them up a little bit. Try to move from once in a blue moon spending time in the Word to often spending time in the Word. Try to move from once in a while showing up to church to being a regular at church. Try to move from being a regular at church to at least once in a while popping in on some of the extra things. You're not going to hell because you don't go to a prayer meeting or because you don't go to a class or you don't... No. But we're not just trying to escape hell. We're trying to love God. Some of us, our picture of heaven is so boring because we don't love God. We're just glad that we're not in hell. But we should long for heaven because He's there. And He's the one I pursue. And He's the one I love. And I want to speak... His love language, right? What, is, what pleases Him? 
And it doesn't please him to just skate the line. I don't have a specific homework for you. You need to examine yourself. Hopefully you did some of that when we were taking communion. But that's a continued posture. And as we look at our lives, when we look at our hearts, we want to push ourselves out of the lane of complacency, bare minimalism, into more of a wholehearted pursuit after the Lord. Let him expose to you what that might look like. And recognize that each and every one of us is in that path. We're all trying to pursue more. None of us is perfect. That certainly includes myself. That's why we ask him for grace. So as the worship team comes on up.